A few weeks ago, you may remember, I mentioned our family going to a Wofford App State game a few years ago. It was actually right after we had moved here. Um, I did mention that not only were there a lot of Wofford fans there, it was here. There were a ton of App State fans here, and they were loud App State fans. They were boisterous, um, and they were very confident that day. A lot of them were wearing shirts that said, we rock the big house, um, football is better in the South, something like that, because they had just pulled off one of the greatest upsets in college football history two weekends before. They had beaten Michigan, the mighty Michigan Wolverines, in Ann Arbor, and now they were coming to play Wofford. And I remember thinking as we walked into the stadium, it's got to be hard if you're an 18-year-old kid not to get overconfident after going to Ann Arbor and beating Michigan. Well, uh, I don't know if they were overconfident or not. Uh, I didn't talk to any of the players. The fans were pretty overconfident. And if you know anything about that game, it didn't turn out so well for App State. You beat Michigan, and two weeks later, you lose to Wofford. Um, It seemed pretty evident of uh, the, the biblical verse, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, Pride is something that's very easy to see in a situation like that. And it's very easy to see pride in other people. But it's very hard to see pride in ourselves, isn't it? Uh, C.S. Lewis, and and today is C.S. Lewis National Quote Day, so you just need to know that ahead of time. But C.S. Lewis says, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. No fault which makes you more unpopular and more fault of which you're you're less aware of. You're just not aware of being prideful. It's hard to see in ourselves. In the chapters we're going to read this morning, we're really going to concentrate, kind of bear down on one figure in this, uh, and that's the character of Haman. Uh, he's, He's just a great example, or a bad example, depending on how you look at it, of pride and the results of pride. And as we look at that, uh, I hope we'll use his example to examine our own lives as well. Now, before I read this, though, let me kind of review, just so you'll know where we are in the flow of the book of Esther. And this is going to be a tight review. I'm leaving out some details, so go back and read if, uh, if, if you want to catch up on the full story. But anyway, the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. That's the situation. Uh, The nation of Babylon is conquered by the Persians. They allow many of the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their temple, which has been destroyed. Some of them decide to stay. There's a group of Jewish people who remain in Babylon there. Uh, One of them, through this uh, extreme beauty contest, becomes queen. And so Esther uh, becomes queen there in Babylon. She's Jewish. But nobody knows it, uh, except her cousin Mordecai. And I think I've been calling him her uncle, but he's actually her cousin. Her cousin Mordecai is the only one who knows that she's Jewish. And he's counseled her to keep her identity secret. One day, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, uh, is hanging out kind of at City Hall. And he learns of this plot to assassinate the king. He lets Esther know Esther lets the king know they catch the men who were going to assassinate the king, and they write it down in a book. 
There's no party, there's no celebration, there's no attaboy. There's, there's no recognition of Mordecai at all. Instead, the story immediately transitions into the story of a man named Haman, who the king has made basically his prime minister. He's sort of, sort of second in command over all of the land. Uh, and he, is, he and Mordecai, they just don't get along. Uh, Haman is in a position where you're supposed to bow to him if you go past him. Mordecai refuses to do this. He won't bow to him. He won't bow uh, to Haman. Haman gets bent out of shape about this, really bent out of shape about this. And so he goes to the king and he convinces the king that Mordecai and all the Jewish people in the land need to be executed. All right? A little over the top, maybe. Uh, Mordecai is, is mortified by this. And so he calls Esther. And he says, Esther, you need to go, talk, go in and talk to the king because he's about to kill everybody. He's about to kill all of us. And at first, Esther says, I, I, I can't do that. Um, he's, he's, he's not going to talk to me. He might put me to death. He hasn't called me in in a long time. <clears throat> and finally, she agrees to go in and plead for the life of her people. Now, the, the catch being um, that unless the king holds out the golden scepter to her when she comes in, unless he does that, indicating that he's pleased with her, she's going to be put to death. All right? That's, that's where we've been hanging in suspense uh, since last week. So, Esther chapter 5, and this is, this is God's word. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half my kingdom. All right, so it's so far so good, right? And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So, My request is that you come to another party, all right? So keep going. And Haman went out that day. So Haman leaves the meeting. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. 
And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet, all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. It's not looking so good now. Uh, On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. All right, so Mordecai's plot's kind of starting to come unraveled here. And the king's young men told him, excuse me, Haman's plot is starting to come unraveled. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. All right, just imagine for a second, South Carolina wins the national championship in football this fall. And Dabo Sweeney has to lead Steve Spurrier through the streets of Columbia proclaiming uh, how great this coach is. All right, that's kind of how this would feel uh, to Haman. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall as of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. 
If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with a loss to the king. Then King Ahusra said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king faded. And if you'll humor me, let me read two verses that aren't in there. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. All right, let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, uh, this is your word. This is all your word. Uh, and you've given us this uh, story to help us, uh, to show us your care for us, to show us the dangers of pride, to teach us, uh, to point us to your son even. And so I pray that you would do that now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the tables kind of turned, didn't they? Uh, the tables have turned for Haman. Uh, the, the, the king, here's a brief summary of what we just read. Esther goes in. The king's pleased with Esther. Her life is spared. Um, Haman is getting more and more upset with Mordecai. He's plotting to kill Mordecai. But in the middle of all this, the king has a sleepless night. And he pulls the and he turns off his mic because he's tired of it. Haman's hung, and all his possessions are given to Esther, and, and, and uh, Mordecai is set over. Uh, Mordecai is basically given Haman's old job. He's given Haman's position. Right? That's, that's what we just read. So, uh, what do we take away from that? What do we take away from all that? First of all, God is at work. Now, I think we may have said this every week, but it bears, every week of this book, but it bears repeating because we're so quick to forget it. Uh, at the end of chapter 5 that we read, Things look rather bleak because Haman has finally had enough of Mordecai. He's just the final straw. And so he has this 75-foot-high gallows built, and he's preparing to hang Mordecai. On top of that, the king, King Ahasuerus, he has spared Esther's life, all right? But she hasn't told him she's Jewish yet. So we still don't know how that's going to go over. And she hasn't made an appeal uh, for her people's life. So we don't know how that's going to go over yet either. either. And so it feels like the whole thing's just about to come unraveled because uh, Haman's going to have Mordecai hung before this plot can develop 
any further. All right, it, it, it feels kind of like, uh, and this is just heavy football illustration today, I'm sorry. This goes to the seasons here. Um, it, it feels like you're, you're, you're watching you know, your favorite team play on television. They're losing the game. They throw a Hail Mary. There's one receiver down there, and there's like six defenders down there. It just looks obvious they're going to make the interception, and your season's going to be over. And right as you're watching this, your friend calls who's not watching the game, and so you pause the game, and the ball's just sort of hanging there. The six defenders getting ready to grab it out of the air, and your friend says, how's the game going? And you say, not too good. It doesn't, it doesn't look very well right now. It doesn't look like this is going to end well. It looks very messy. I'm not confident of the outcome at all. And you're stuck there. Life can kind of be like that sometime, right? You're sort of you're sort of stuck in a moment. Uh, to quote you two, you, you you can't you can't figure out what to do, what's going to happen next. You're you're looking at this hopeless situation. The ball's just hanging there in the air. You know you're not going to be the one to get it, and it can just feel like the end of the road to you. Uh, there was an article written uh, a few years ago in in World Magazine, and and the title of the, the article was. Messy in the middle, but the end of the story can change everything. And the, the author of the story tells of a, a young woman coming to her in despair in 1998 because her father was leaving her mother for a woman that was younger than the daughter was. And she was just, she was just messed up about this. She, she couldn't believe. She was, she was torn about this. She couldn't believe what was happening in her family. Nine years later, she comes back and she tells the story of how God had worked through and, and straightened all that out. How he had worked redemption in that family's life and had changed everything. It looked really messy in the middle. It didn't look like there was a, any possible good outcome for this. But God was at work. God was at work. The story of Esther looks very messy in the middle. But by chapter 8, it's very obvious that God has been at work. Your life may look very messy right now. But if you're his child, he's at work. Even if you can't see it, even if you can't feel it, even if you can't sense it. And so there's this call to us as believers to wait patiently and to pray, to wait upon the Lord and to see what God will do. To see what God will do. That doesn't mean that every situation turns out the way we want it to. They don't always turn out the way we want them to. But it does remind us to remember, you know what? You can't see the end of this story yet. And you certainly can't see the end of the story. You can't can't see the end of, of, of the big story. Um, and, and even if you can't see the end of the story, I said that all wrong. You can see the end of the big story. You can't see the end of this story. Because even if you can't see how this turns out right now, you can see how the big story ends. That God is at work, that He has worked redemption for His people, and that this is all going to come full circle and come together in the new heavens and the earth, new earth when there's no more crying and no more tears and no more shame and no more guilt. When uh, as it's been said, everything bad will come undone in the end, when all things are made new. C.S. Lewis put it this way, 
This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Nothing's going to make up for this. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. God is at work when things look bright, when things look very dark. God is at work. And, and we need to encourage one another and pray for one another so that we can believe that. You know, there may be some of you right now who are going through a very dark time, a very messy time, very messy family situations, and you can't see how this is going to end well. The, the football's hanging in the air, and it really looks like it's going to be intercepted. And so we need to pray for one another. We need to pray that that pass won't be intercepted, that there will be a completed pass. But we also need to pray that the person going through this will be encouraged and that they won't lose faith and they will have confidence uh, in their Father and they will be able to walk um, with Him not by, not by sight, but by faith and trust Him in the midst of the messiness. God's at work. Second thing, and this is, this is the main thing I want to communicate today, pride. Pride. This is a story, these chapters are all about pride. Uh, In fact, Haman's probably one of the best pictures in the Bible of of, of pride. Of pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I mean, that is the story of Haman's life. And I want you to, to look with me at how Haman is completely, his state of mind is completely wrapped up in what other people think about him. He's completely controlled by what other people think about him. All right? Think back to chapter 3. All right? I know we just read a lot of chapters. I'm not going to read chapter 3 too. Um, but, but the king promotes Haman to this high position. And he orders everybody that goes by Haman that they have to bow to him. They have to pay homage to him. Now, ordinarily in this type of society, if someone received this position you would just know to bow to them. You just did that. Well, that's the prime minister. I'm supposed to bow. But the king has to command everybody to bow to Haman. So evidently, everybody knew he was a jerk. And nobody really wanted to bow to him. And so the king has to say, you, you got to bow to this guy. And yet, here's Mordecai saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And and Haman just, he can't handle that. All right, He just blows his stack about that. I'm I'm killing all the Jews because this one Jew wouldn't bow to me. Now think about that. Uh, here's Haman. He's, he's basically second in command. He's got people bowing to him all day, every day. I mean, that's just, that's just what people do. And now one person, one little dude, won't bow to him. And he can't blow that off. He can't get past that. He, he's not able to say, oh, it's just Mordecai. He's just cranky. I'm not, all these other people bowing to me, so I'm not going to worry. He's not able to do that. Because the, the recognition he's getting from everybody else isn't enough for him. I mean, think about it, the whole nation is giving him recognition. But it's not enough. Mordecai has got to bow to and so he flies in this rage, and he, he wants the Jews killed. He wants Mordecai killed. Um, he's not honored. 
And so he completely loses it. Now, sounds kind of silly, right? We would never do anything like that. Um, when was the last time you got bent out of shape because somebody, nobody called to check on you when you were sick? When was the last time you got bent out of shape when nobody remembered that it was your birthday? When was the last time um, when you got bent out of shape because nobody made a big deal about the promotion you got at work? Or when you were doing all this hard work but the, the boss didn't recognize it at all? Or you, you feel like the contributions you're making at church or at work or wherever, that nobody's noticing what I'm doing. Nobody noticed my new outfit. Do you like it, by the way? <laughs> Just kidding. Nobody noticed what my children have accomplished. Nobody gave them any recognition. What's your state of mind when that happens? What's going on inside of you? When you think you deserve recognition and you didn't get it. When you think your kids deserve recognition and they didn't get it. Well, fast forward to, to today's text. Um, Haman's invited to this banquet was with Esther and the king. Uh, and, and because of that, this is what we read, verse 9 again. He goes into the feast with Esther and the king. And he leaves, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. I know, uh, Haman's all ticked off because Mordecai is not bowing to him. But then, oh, wait, I get to go to the feast with Esther and the king, and I'm the only one that gets to go. And, and Haman's feeling pretty good about himself now. And then, <clears throat> down in verse 11, he's hanging out with uh, his wife and some of his friends. In verse 11, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, how much money I have, and the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. All right? He's, he's building up his own ego. He's listing off his accomplishments to his wife, to all the, the friends who've gathered around his house. I've got all this money. I've got all these children. I'm number two in the kingdom. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, I can I can still remember, and this is I may have shared this story before. It was kind of one of those first self-aware moments in life, um, uh, with the help from somebody else. It was it was I was in fourth grade, and we had just taken some test. I don't remember the subject, and we were lining up to go to lunch. And I asked somebody, "How did you do on that test?" And the guy sitting next to him said, "The only reason you ask him that is because you want to brag about how well you did on the test." <laughs> You want to hear what he said, and then you want to be able to trump him. And I was like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, there's witty fourth-grade comebacks. But um, did not. So, but, I, but in my mind, I was thinking, that's right. That's, that's right. That's exactly why I asked him that question. Um, how often do we do that? We just look for those little opportunities to drop hints about how well we're doing or how wonderful we are um, we kind of drop those into uh, our conversations we want to get applause we want to get positive feedback we want to build ourselves up because we're we're constructing that identity for ourselves instead of finding it in christ um we, we've got to have i've got to have you reaffirm me so so here's haman um he's glad he's joyful 
that he got to go to the feast. He's, he's bragging, he's boasting about all his accomplishments. Um, as Larry Bird said, it's not bragging if you can back it up. But, you know, that, that's, that's what Haman's thinking and doing right now. But, but underneath all of that, look at, look at verse 9 again. Look at the end of verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he never rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. That, that dang Mordecai, he still, he still won't bow down to me. And then look at verse 13. Uh, yet all this is worth nothing to me. Everything I have is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This one thing, this one thing, Mordecai not bowing to Haman cancels out in Haman's mind all the other good stuff that he's received. He can't enjoy being rich. He can't enjoy the banquet. He can't enjoy the promotion he's received because they were all just means to an end of being recognized. And Mordecai doesn't care about any any of that and he won't recognize him. He won't give Haman the recognition that he thinks he deserves. So you see how his Haman's mood, his outlook is completely controlled by whether people are recognizing him, whether people are respecting him, where people are making a big deal out of him. He's completely absorbed with himself. And that's what pride is. That's what pride is. Uh, C.S. Lewis defined pride as ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Uh, He said that pride makes you unable to enjoy things in and of themselves. And this is a little bit of a paraphrase. We only get enjoyment out of recognition and of having more than the next person. And here's, here's his quote. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. Haman wants the pleasure of being above the rest. And all of these things that he has, this position, are, are meant to bring him respect and approval. But Mordecai is not giving it to him. Mordecai is not giving it to him. Uh, pride. It's being completely absorbed with yourself, which is what Haman is. And it can actually take two forms. One is a form that we're most familiar with. Uh, that's uh, feelings of superiority. All right, you calculate and compare how you're doing in comparison to other people. How you look, how much money you have, how funny you are, whatever. You're always comparing yourself to other people. And you feel pretty good about yourself. But the other form of pride is is inferiority. Uh, You don't like yourself. You you never measure up to how other people are raising their kids. You're never pretty enough or or whatever enough. Uh, You're not doing a good, as good a job as 
the next person. Your grades aren't as good as the other guys. And look, you say, how's that pride? Well, it's all about you again. It's, it's all about you again. You're completely absorbed with yourself. You just sense you're not measuring up, but it's still all about you. Life is all about you and how you're doing. And that's pride. It's a weird form, reverse form of pride, but it's pride. Now, where does that lead? Where does pride lead? Well, pride will destroy you. Um, it, it destroys people. Look, look, you know, in this story, Haman's pride leads him to issue this edict to have all of the Jews destroyed. That's where his pride left. Now, it backfires on him. It doesn't ultimately doesn't lead to the death of the Jews, but it leads to Haman's death. Pride's destructive. It's self-destructive. Destructive. Well, how do I see it? How do I find pride in, in my life? And I want to just read you a few thoughts, and, and these are not original with me, but um, just, just a few things to think about to examine yourself for, for pride. One way pride shows up is insecurity. Uh, we're constantly looking for other people's approval, and we're devastated when we don't get it. That can be a form of pride. It shows up as self-promotion. Making sure people are aware of what we've done or where we've been or what we've bought. Uh, a third way it shows up is if we're unable to receive correction or criticism. We're always right. Um, and if things are going badly in our lives, it's always somebody else's fault. Uh, or if you suffer from the inferiority form of pride, you just break down when somebody starts to criticize you. You just, you just can't handle it. Uh, a fourth way it shows up is we can't learn from our mistakes because we can never admit that we've made a mistake. Uh, it shows up in us being angry and impatient and irritable. Why am I impatient with you? Because you're not meeting my needs at the moment, and my needs and my time and my point of view are more important than yours. And you're, you're causing some conflict there. And so I become impatient and irritable. And that's just my pride. It shows up when we don't listen to each other. It shows up when we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And I, don't str- I, I may struggle with sin, but at least I don't struggle with that. And I would do that. Um, pride can make you indecisive. How can it make you indecisive? Because you don't want to make a decision that might make you look bad. So I, I don't know what to do. Uh, pride can also make you outspoken. Because what other people think doesn't matter. Right? That one's more obvious. I don't care what you think. This is, this is the right opinion, so I'm going to speak up and say it. On the other hand, again, flip that back over one more time. Pride can also make you shy. How does it make you shy? Because you're constantly worrying about what other people think. All right, and so you're, you're afraid to speak up. You're afraid to say something because of what other people's reaction to you is going to be, and that's another form of pride. Uh, Lewis says, and, and maybe you can see this from the list I just read, he says that pride leads to every other vice. Uh, he says it's the complete anti-God state of mind. In fact, he says we can give lip service to God and to religion when in fact we're far from God and we're simply into religion because it feeds our 
pride. To, to quote C.S. Lewis again, whenever we feel that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all that we are better than someone else, I think that we may be sure that we, be, that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. You know, we, we think we're going to find life, we think we're going to feel better about things by promoting ourselves, by being recognized, by building ourselves up. But the Bible says the exact opposite of that, doesn't it? Uh, the Bible tells us if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, at the end of the day, you'll actually be exalted. It tells us we've got to lose our life. We've got to give up on my life to actually find life. Where do I find that? Where do I find that ability to, to humble myself? Where do I find that ability to, to forget about myself? Remember what we said humility was? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Where do we get that humble spirit of, of self-forgetting? Well, it comes as we see two things, and these are things we say on a regular basis. It comes when I see that I'm so messed up that Jesus had to die for me. That that's really what I'm like. Someone had to die for me. And yet Jesus loves me so much that he gladly gave himself for me. I'm more messed up than I could ever really imagine. That I'm not as good a preacher as I think. I'm not that good a dad. I'm not that good a husband. Uh, I'm not that good at, at whatever I think I'm good at. And my heart is, is much darker than I would even like to know. It really is. It's so dark that Jesus had to die for me to deal with the darkness of my heart. So what do I really have to brag about? But I'm not left simply to wallow and to navel gaze and to be depressed, feeling bad about myself. Uh, looking for somebody that's worse off than I am. Because the other truth of this is, the Gospel tells me that the King of the universe sent His Son to die for me. Because He loves me. Because He treasured me. He sent His Son to die for me and to give me His royal robes. To clothe me with His robes of righteousness so that I might have right standing with the King. So that God Himself, the King, might welcome me into His presence and receive me uh, as his son or his daughter with, with complete access to him. With the ability to find intimacy and delight in him. He brings me into his presence and gives me the honor. The honor and the acceptance uh, that I never dreamed I would find. It's found in him. And you know what? If, if Haman had known that, something of that, he wouldn't have had to seek approval from Mordecai and from his wife and from his friends and from the king. And if you and I know that, if we know that we have the approval of the king, the welcome of the king in Jesus Christ, that's going to begin to chip away at the roots of our pride. It's going to chip away at our quest for endless, our endless quest for recognition. It's going to free us from boasting on one hand, but it's also going to free us from fear on the other hand. Because who we are will no longer be determined by 
what other people think of us. It will be determined by what the king thinks of us. And the king's well pleased with us because of what his son has done for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we do confess that we are prideful people uh, and that we are constantly in search of an identity, of something to brag in, to boast in, to rely on, uh, to make us feel like we count, that we matter, that we're not worthless. And yet, Father, we're never going to find that in ourselves. Uh, In fact, when we start to think we're finding it, it only destroys us and the people around us. So, Father, would you humble us? Would you cause us to let go of our pride? Would you cause us to see what really is in our hearts? Or would you cause us to see also how much you love us and what you've given us uh, in Jesus? We pray it in his name. Amen.